0: As Jeff comes, uh, I just want to say on behalf of all of us, we're very grateful for your uh, ministry to us tonight. Uh, It's such a privilege to work with so many brothers in our presbytery, and and, uh, Jeff is is one of those that uh, you're just so thankful to be able to work alongside. So thank you, brother. God bless you. Thank you. And I am very delighted to be here tonight. To open God's word with you, tonight we'll be looking at John chapter 4, beginning at verse 43. This is in a series of sermons that I've been preaching in our church in the Gospel of John. And tonight, I've prayed a great deal about this particular sermon. I don't know you like I know the people in our congregation. Feels like you can pray more intelligently then, but I've been asking the Lord that he would use this word for those of you who are here tonight. So John chapter 4, beginning at verse 43, hear the word of the Lord. After the two days he departed from Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, "'Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe.'" The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Father, the psalmist commends to us a simple truth, And the simple request that we lay before you before the preaching and hearing of the sermon, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Many years ago, when I was a relatively new pastor, I was also the chaplain of our local police department, a position I thoroughly enjoyed, especially for the following reason. One afternoon, I was on a ride-along, and a man whose name I won't mention, but wouldn't mind me telling you this story, he invited me to to do something I did not imagine. That is, he said, you are the only religious person I know. How would you like to perform the wedding for me and my fiancé? So I said to him, I'll do that as long as we have five sessions of premarital counseling. That's what I require for every person I married, and he agreed. The first time the couple came to my office, the woman was wearing a t-shirt, and I'm not going to describe what it had on it because it was a very strong sexual innuendo. She had, as is common in the Midwest, a baseball cap folded very tightly around, you know the look, and pulled very low. And I said to them, it's not necessary that you actually believe everything I tell you, but you have to study what I give you, you have to give your best to the answers, and you have to show up in time whenever we have these premarital counseling. And they agreed. And so I structured that premarital counseling according to creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And in each one of our first four times of premarital counseling, we looked at how one of those applied to marriage. And again, it was rather, shall I say, friendly in the conversation, but I saved until the fifth time roles in marriage. And then we went to Ephesians chapter 5, where the Bible says, as you might know, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, and wives submit to your own own husbands as you would submit to the Lord. So in walked a couple for the fifth counseling session, premarital counseling session, and because it felt safer (laughs) and I was scared, I said to the young man, so what do you think? He said, unbelievable. And not in a good way. He said the most backward, (laughs) the most 1950s, the most leave-it-to-beaver approach to marriage I've ever experienced. This is not going to be our marriage ever at all. So I turned to the young woman. I said, uh, "So what did you think?" And there was a very long pause, very long. And she said, "You know, pastor, I've been married two times before. My first husband abused me, and I left him. My second husband simply left me out of the blue for someone else. This third time I wanted to stick. And if you would tell me that my husband would obviously and sincerely love me in the way that this describes true love, I would follow him to the end of the earth. And I almost fell off my chair. (laughs) And I've told that story quite a number of times because that story illustrates something important and that is the beauty of Christian marriage. But when I've told it in the past, and here's my confession, I've always told it as a bit of a victory story. Look what good premarital counseling will do. I've come to believe that actually that story illustrates what is a very serious and important gap in what I did with them in premarital counseling. And in fact, I would say to you tonight... In this passage, we see a gap that existed not only in that office, it often exists in our hearts and the life of our church as well. Because in this story, what John is careful to highlight is something about true faith. And here's what I want to tell you, and then I'm going to show you how this is true from the text. He says that true faith begins only when what we ask from God is eclipsed by what Jesus himself offers. That's when true faith begins. And tonight, as I said, I want to show you that in the two parts of this passage. It's a rather simple outline I'm going to give you. Just two two main things. Children, if you're listening, just remember these two things when you head home with your mom and dad. First, what the man expected, what he wanted, what they wanted, and then second, what Jesus gave to them. In order to understand that, I simply want to divide this text into two parts. There's verses 43 through 47, and then there are verses 48 following through the end of this section. I've got to introduce this part of this passage by saying this would be the lesser known part of John chapter 4. Many of us who've been in church for a long time know the story of the woman at the well. You might know that the story of the woman at the well comes in Samaria Now, I don't have time to explain everything about Samaria, but it was not Israel. Let me simply say that. And Jesus has gone from Jerusalem to Samaria, to Galilee, which is in Israel, and the text says that Jesus, in his route, actually returns to the place where his first miracle had been performed, that is to Cana in Galilee. And John has been laying before the reader, including us tonight, over and over in this gospel, this question that he designs to answer in this text and all of John. And the question is, why in the world should rational human beings, people of many choices about what to believe in life, why would any of you believe that Jesus Christ is the one you ought to put faith in, you should believe in. Why should you do that? John says, I wrote a book to convince you that Jesus alone is capable of bearing your faith. And that's what I want to tell you. And John now adds at the end of this account of the woman at the well, this story about an official in order to emphasize to us a critical point about what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. There's a second detail from history as well, the history of this book that John is careful to highlight. We read very early on in this section, verses 43 through 47, that the Galileans welcomed Jesus because they saw all that he had done in Jerusalem. What did Jesus do in Jerusalem? If you go back to chapter 2, John records the cleansing of the temple. Jesus enters the temple during the time of a feast. And if you remember, there were money changers in the court of the temple who were almost certainly taking advantage of those who came to worship. And they were turning the worship of God into a way to make money. Worship turned into a cash opportunity. And Jesus drove them out, drove out the money changers and the animals alike, and the Jews demand, after Jesus drives them out, to have a sign. Understand they were not looking for a lightning bolt from heaven. By a sign, they mean, and by what authority can you cast out those who are in the temple court? Why do you do that, Jesus? What well, gives you the right. And Jesus, in one of the most stark passages in the Gospel of John... Says, not only will I give you a sign, I will give you the sign that seems incredible to do to you. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. Jesus is not referring to that temple that had taken a generation or two to build. What he is saying, and John explains, is that he means to refer to his body. That is, that his body will resurrect three days later. And you wonder, what does that have to do with the question they ask? By what authority? Here's the key point. Jesus has the authority to govern the place where God said the people were to worship him, the place where God said that he would dwell, because Jesus, hear this, is God's dwelling with us. He said, if I am God with you, then I have a right to say this is what ought to happen here. I have the ultimate authority. I am God himself. And these Jews, these Galileans, heard what Jesus had done in the temple, and they were amazed. Now, a little thought experiment with you. I hope you don't mind. Imagine that you had been one of these Galileans. And you had seen what Jesus had done at the temple, the power, the authority with which He spoke. The Bible said He had done other signs as well in Jerusalem. Imagine that Jesus was coming to your city. What would you do? What would you want? And these Jews, these Galileans, who saw what Jesus did in Jerusalem, their response was a very natural human response they wanted to know now what Jesus could do for them as well. To spin it a little bit, you know, there was this old commercial, What Can Brown Do For You? (laughs) The Galilean said, Jesus, what can you do for us? And this man that the the story focuses on in particular wants Jesus to do something for him. Maybe you are thinking, I'm being a bit too harsh with the Galilean's But Jesus doesn't say so. He says that a prophet has no honor in his home country. To be clear, when Jesus says that, he's using a word, honor, that is used only here in the Gospel of John. It is not the honor that you would ordinarily associate with God himself. It's simple recognition he is saying a prophet is not even recognized as a prophet in his home country. That's not what the Galileans are doing, saying you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God, we're coming to you. No, they are simply asking Jesus to do something powerful to, for them. The text also emphasizes their lackluster response to Jesus. The welcome here is not the kind of welcome that probably happened when your grandparents or your grandchildren came to your house for Christmas. Did that happen for you? Your grandparents showed up at your house. What happened? If that happens for us, we rush out to the driveway. Some of the kids don't even put on their shoes. They can hardly wait to give grandpa and grandma a hug. They want to know, will you give me a hug? Welcome. We're so glad that you're here. That's not the welcome the Galileans gave Jesus Instead, John uses a term that is more like the welcome that happens when the cashier at the grocery store, well, maybe you don't get change anymore. (laughs) But if you can remember back when you would get change, when you paid with cash, and she would say thank you, and you would say you're welcome. You barely even notice it. The Galileans were not interested in receiving Jesus The dwelling of God with us into their city. No, they barely recognize Him. And they welcome Him in the most unrecognizable way into their city. Again, really, what they're interested in is not Jesus, but what Jesus can do for them. And this desire of many is made explicit in this story of this official. You have to know something about this official as well. At this point, he was most likely, almost certainly an official who was serving Herod Antipas. And as an official, he would be in a position of being able to command others around him. You remember the story of the centurion. This would have been sort of an equivalent authority. He would be able to command others, and they had to do his work. Think of your boss in the place where you work. He or she says, do this, and you are required to do it. And that sort of request, almost a command, becomes very clear in the way that this man addresses Jesus for the first time. When this man, it says in verse 47, heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. There is a request with a sense of of urgency, you must do it because I have a need. Now, let me tell you, my friend, that's not a bad request. Maybe you've made similar requests in your life. There was a point at which I had a child who was very, very sick in the hospital. I prayed that God would give healing. Maybe you've done the same. Maybe over the last couple of years, you had a spouse or a close friend who contracted COVID and went into the hospital, and you prayed, Lord, spare my spouse, spare my friend, heal him or her. You were urgent in your prayers. Or maybe your urgency is not about an illness. Maybe it is about something else in life. It could be a whole bunch of things. It could be a job that you are locked into, and as much as you don't like your job, maybe you're already dreading it tonight on Sunday evening. <laughs> you know, you got to go in tomorrow morning and you're not excited. You're like, God, oh, I got to go back to it. And you have prayed many times that the Lord would help you in your position. Or maybe your earnest request is not health or job, maybe it's a relationship. I'm guessing in the number of people here there are a few, at least a few marriages that struggle. You live in a marriage where there's conflict, maybe not high level, but when that other person comes into the room, you get a little tense. And you have prayed many, many times, Lord, heal my marriage. I need your help. Why don't you come and help me? There are many, many ways in which the request the passionate request of this official finds an equivalency in our hearts. And like all of those who are listening, at least many who are described as hearing Jesus' words in Galilee, this official represents them as those who want Jesus to do something for them. Let me just note to you, if you've thought it already, if you're tracking with me, You're saying to me, Pastor, is it wrong to ask for these things? I shouldn't ask for healing. I shouldn't ask for better marriage. It's not wrong to ask for those things at all. In fact, we're going to note in a little bit that Jesus heals the official son. It's not wrong to ask. But I want to run a little thought experiment with you, if you'd be willing to do that. Let me ask you, what would happen in your heart if Jesus would give you all the things that you pray earnestly for, a better marriage, better job, better health, that person that you've prayed for for a long time to come to faith in Jesus Christ, what would happen if our Savior would give you all the things that you earnestly ask Him for? Jesus, heal my son. Jesus, heal my marriage. Heal my spouse. Heal my work relationship. Whatever it is. The question for you is this. Would it be enough? Would it be enough? Or using the example of the fiancé that I noted at the beginning of tonight's sermon, would a loving husband and a great marriage, would that be enough for her? If she could have a husband who would love her as Christ loved the church and would give himself for her without any hesitation, would not abuse her, would not leave her, would that be enough for her? Let me tell you, my friend, that many people believe it would be. Maybe you came into this building assuming it would be. If I'd only receive what I need in life, my life would be better, it'd be good. And I'm asking the right person, right? God should give me the things that are right and true, that he says in his word even I'm commanded to ask him for. If God would only give me those things, it would be enough. In fact, if I can just press on your heart a little bit. I feel a little bit awkward doing that because I barely know you, but extend to me just a little bit of trust to hear what I'm saying. If our Savior would give you everything that you want, the things that you pray for at 2 a.m. when you can't sleep, if our Savior would give you those things, would it be enough? This is a particular question not just for those of us tonight who are not believers it is a really good question for those of us who do believe because we are taught to pray earnestly jesus said to ask your father in heaven for the things that you need and so we do tonight the question is not whether you should pray it's whether if you received the things that you prayed for, would it be enough? Let me challenge you. I have a sneaking suspicion that if the Lord were to give you exactly what you're asking for in every respect, it would not be enough. And the reason I'm saying that is because Jesus says it would not be enough. This is what the man and the Galileans were expecting. Jesus, do what we need. But the second half of our passage, really the majority of our passage, tells us about what Jesus gave. Again, true faith begins when what we expect is eclipsed by what Jesus provides. You can pick up the story again in verse 48. Jesus there is speaking to the Father and there is where he challenges him. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now it's easy to miss what Jesus is saying, so let me explain it. He is criticizing a certain kind of faith. It is a belief in Jesus based on what Jesus is doing and not who Jesus is. That's not real faith. He says emphatically to this Father, If you depend on signs and wonders, you will never believe. It's impossible to have genuine faith if you are basing that faith simply on what you're hoping Jesus will do for you. Again, it's a faith not based on who Jesus is. Not in Jesus Himself. It's based in what Jesus does. How He gives you what you're looking for. Again, let me reassure, reassure you tonight, it's not that Jesus is indifferent to this man's plight. He does care about the man's son. We're going to see in a moment, Jesus heals the boy simply by speaking. Jesus isn't indifferent to this reality. But what I'm telling you tonight is that Jesus tells us, man, the healing's not enough. Prospering is not enough. Flourishing is not enough. Whatever you are seeking tonight is not enough. What we need Jesus says, is faith in Him. Let me drive home this point again to you tonight. Because it's so critical. And perhaps we are tempted as a religious community, as a religious group of people, not to understand what Jesus is saying. I think there's a particular susceptibility to believing in the ordinary means of grace, including prayer, And we miss what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not just addressing the official. When Jesus speaks to this man again, He says, you all will never believe if you all do not see signs and wonders. He's not speaking to this man alone. He is speaking to the Galileans as a whole. And I would say He is speaking tonight to you as well. He means to address the entire community with what Jesus provides that we might not be looking for. Look at how the man responds in verse 49. Again, I want to show you this very carefully. At the beginning of his response to Jesus, he says something that you may have missed the first time I read it. This man's heart is changing. It's softening. If he commanded Jesus before, And Jesus rebuffed him by saying, it's not signs and wonders that you need. If it's based on what I'm going to do for you, it's never going to be enough. If you're looking for me to do what you want, you will never believe. The man seems to hear because he responds to Jesus in a noticeably different tone than he had before. He says, sir, or literally lord, rather than to be commander, now he is the one who is submissive. He says, Sir, Lord, come down before my child dies. I do need your help. I know you have the power. I know it's possible. I know you're able. Would you please? And I want you to see that tonight, really what I'm hoping will happen in this body and in your heart as you'll wrestle with this simple truth. Can you see what's happened? The man came looking for healing for his son. He wants it to happen Just like the people of Cana want another sign, just do it for us already, Jesus. We've seen you do marvelous things in Jerusalem. Do it here too. But his interaction with Jesus leads to a subtle but critical shift in his heart from what Jesus can do for him, what he is seeking, to rather what Jesus can give. And what is Jesus really giving here? What is Jesus giving Is it the healing of his son? Certainly, Jesus will heal his son. We read that in in the end of this passage. No, what Jesus is giving this man is not just the healing of his son. Really, Jesus is giving himself. He is doing what the Gospel of Matthew says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In fact, tonight I want to say to you quite boldly, this is the nature of true faith. It always is. What we want is eclipsed by what Jesus gives. True faith will always look at what it means to be a child of God in this fashion. It is not enough for us to simply say, you're doing what I want, Jesus, so I will believe in you. Rather, true faith says, you are Jesus, the Son of God. I give myself entirely to you. I rest and rely upon you. Therefore, I'm looking to you for my help. Not to be picking on our teenagers at all. I love our teenagers at home. They're awesome. But it's a difference between a teenager saying to mom and dad, I really like you, because you're giving me free room and board. (laughs) And I love you. I trust you. We're together. Jesus is working this subtle shift in the heart of this man. And it is the kind of shift that I want to commend to you tonight. Why do I commend it so strongly? Why is this passage contained in the Gospel of John? It is because it lies at the very core of the Christian life. It lies at the very core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to have that genuine faith in Jesus? What does it mean to be able to rest and rely upon Him and Him alone? What does it mean that you trust Jesus, not simply because of what He gives, but because of who He is? I'll tell you. Do you want to hear? It's something I've really wrestled with in thinking about this sermon. In fact, in some ways, maybe your own pastors would tell you this, every time I preach a sermon, what I find happening is the Holy Spirit has to work into my heart a convincing way before I feel ready to preach it to you. I have earnestly asked the Lord for some very important things in the last couple of years. Probably primary would be the health of my wife, who's not well. And I say to the Lord, Lord, you said that you love my wife. You said that she is your daughter. Why don't you heal her? I'm asking you. You tell me to be like the persistent widow, to come over and over and over again. I'm coming daily, sometimes hourly. Why don't you heal her? And what this passage teaches me as it teaches you that asking that question, making that request, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, will only lead to frustration. Because when you ask in faith, what you notice is something supremely important happening in your heart. When you're looking to Jesus is your Savior, is the one you can rest and rely upon. You can have, as Paul says, contentment in the moment, even if your wife is sick and you don't know if it's going to get better, and you can have no fear for the future. Would that describe your heart? Confidence for the present, no fear for the future? I sincerely hope it is that when you look at the story of this man's life at the end of John chapter 4 you would come to the conviction with me that as we read to the end and Jesus confirms to this man that he can in fact heal. At the very moment he spoke, the healing occurred when this man came to trust not in just what Jesus could do, but in Jesus alone, when that shift from do it for me to I'm humbling myself before you. Help me! I'm looking to you. When that shift occurs, Jesus, Jesus confirms to this man he has the power to do. And I'm commending to you the same same thing tonight. Look to Jesus for your help. Not because He's simply able to do it. Not because you need it so bad. Not because your life stinks and you want it to be changed. Because you look to Jesus as your hope now and for eternity. You have in the glorious words of the Gospel of John, there is no other hope. There's only Jesus. And because of that, you can look to Jesus Christ for his help both now and for eternity. (laughs) You know, I'm telling you this story about the woman, the fiance, and the man that came into my office. You know what I did after that occurred? This is really bad. I went home and told my wife about it. That was wrong for a couple of reasons. The most obvious is it happened in a premarital counseling session. I shouldn't be telling my wife what happens there. But I was so astonished that this woman thought that the biblical view of marriage was a good thing, I couldn't help but tell her. But there was something even worse in my heart when that occurred. I was so happy that she didn't push back hard and she could see the beauty of biblical marriage She could see that God could give her what her heart desired. That I never asked her, Are you willing to trust this Jesus? And that's why I'm here tonight to ask you that question. In the middle of whatever it is that God has given you in life, are you willing to trust Jesus? Both for what? You're asking sincerely that He is able to do. But even far more fundamentally, will you trust in Him because of who He is? To this day, I don't know if this woman came to faith in Jesus Christ, but I pray for her. As I pray for you, that you would see this glorious truth that true faith begins... When what we expect from Jesus, really what we often demand from Him, is eclipsed by what Jesus Himself provides for us. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I have no idea, as these words are coming from my mouth, how the hearts of those who are here receive these truths. But I have asked You, and we ask again, that you would have protected this Word as it was sown here tonight, that the evil one would not have snatched away that Word, that instead your Spirit has been preparing hearts of those who are listening to receive this Word with joy, that it will go deep into their hearts and it will flourish, it will grow up from there. Father, sometimes the hardest things for us to wrestle with are the things that we believe are (laughs) The things that we believe are just obvious. And yet you show us tonight that sometimes the obvious may be very difficult for us to wrestle through because you're probing our hearts. You're driving us not just to what we want. You're driving us to who our Savior Jesus is. I pray, Lord, that as a body of believers in this place, I pray for the church at Redeemer as well that you would give us a steadfast confidence in our Savior Jesus Christ. There would be no other hope that John's intention guided by the Spirit when he penned this gospel would find its reality in the church of Jesus Christ today. That we would face our present circumstances and have such joy for the future because we walk with our Savior Jesus Christ who is almighty and powerful and will never fail who said to his disciples, and he says to us tonight, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And if we have that kind of Savior, then to believe in him is not foolish. It is not wrong. It is the only only right thing to do. Eliminate from our minds all the other possibilities and give us Jesus and him alone, for we pray in his precious name, amen. Would you stand and sing with me this wonderful song, Wonderful, Merciful Savior. receive the blessing of your God now after this benediction we'll sing together may the peace may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you all amen